Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Neocon Michael Rubin has penned a column in which he candidly admits that Joe Biden attacked EU infrastructure. Also, Moscow speaks out on the EU refusal to include the Kremlin in its investigation of the attack. Joining us now to discuss this subject and more, we have Alexander Mercoris. Alexander is the editor-in-chief at TheDuran.com and host of The Duran on YouTube and his own show, The Alexander Mercoris Show. Alexander, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Absolutely delighted to be with you again. Oh, well, there's lots going on. We've got OPEC, the big story, but I think these things are related. TASS reports the EU will have to recognize betrayal by allies, Russian MFA about Nord Stream emergency. You know, I think that is a big issue. I may be wrong, but I see all these things together. I see an attack on energy infrastructure, which OPEC would not be happy about. I see now this oil cap price scheme, which OPEC would not be happy about. And I think that these things are connected. So let's start with the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that there's been a lot of discussion about this, but I think the overwhelming consensus from everybody that I have uh, spoken with and have you know heard heard from is that there's only one party and that all the, all the facts point to the United States. And now we have Michael Rubin writing in the national interest, um, effectively, essentially, not just admitting, but bragging. I mean, that was the tone of the article in the national interest, if you read it, that it was indeed the US that carried out this sabotage and suggesting that they do the same to Turkstream as well. In other words, to more Russian pipelines. And um, for me, that is the major crossing of a line. It's the United States now um, acting utterly heedlessly. It's planting you know, bombs, you know, explosions in infrastructure. And of course, it's taking direct action against the energy interests, the vital economic interests of its own allies. And if you if you live in Europe, which of course I do, I mean, Britain is an offshore island, by the way, but it's still part of Europe. If you live in Europe and you saw the effects um, on energy prices uh, that we've had, not just over the last few uh, months, but just over the last few days, you can see tick up, you can see nervousness, we're getting reports of blackouts. You understand how key these interests, economic interests, are, how important they are for us in Europe. This is for us a matter for some people, older people, younger people, poorer people. It's a matter of life and death, the fact that we are not any longer going to get a reliable energy supply. And it was what it does to our economies, it just doesn't even bear thinking about. And yet the United States has gone ahead and done this thing. The Europeans know perfectly well that it is the United States. They're not prepared to let the Russians participate in the investigation because they know that if that happened, the fingers would point, the evidence would mount that it was the United States that was responsible. And yet you can also see that the Europeans, the European leadership, 
is unwilling still to break with the United States, despite the fact that our vital economic interests are now being affected by this U.S. policy. And again, to Garland's opening point about OPEC Plus, uh, we were talking, uh, shoot, like a year ago, that the United States was trying to create scenarios where it could either take over the international energy markets or just become a much larger player in the international energy markets. And that coupled with, it seems as though the United States made a big mistake by not also blowing up line B of Nord Stream 2. So now that seems to, that's only going to exacerbate the situation because now people in Europe will say, oh, the whole thing wasn't blown up, turn up B and let's get some gas flowing here. So it seems as though that's the failure to blow up line B is now just going to heighten people's anger and say, why can't we get this thing done? Absolutely. I mean, already there's been protests in some European um, cities about saying, you know, let's let's get Nord Stream 2 working. I mean, that's the solution. That's the immediate solution to these problems. And it's interesting that they didn't go over line B. They didn't don't seem to have understood exactly how the pipeline system works, which perhaps isn't altogether surprising. I mean, I suspect there was quite a lot of commercial secrecy involved about this. So one way or the other, that was a mistake. But and it is a mistake which may have consequences. But can I just say um, and it's a point that's been made to me also by various people. Not only is it the United States, the only party which had the motive to carry this out. It's the mm -hmm. only party that had the means to carry this out in this particular part of the sea, which is controlled and monitored very carefully by NATO. And um, thirdly, the fact that this has not been a big deal in the European mm -hmm. media or amongst European governments. The silence mm. is... Deafening. Full of noise. It's deafening. It tells you that they all know deep down who did it. They know what the response of the European public would be if they find if they were told openly who did it. And um, for that reason, they don't want to talk about it because they know that claiming that it was the Russians really makes no sense at all. The infamous dog that didn't bark. <laughs> but now uh, you are in England and uh, there seems to be some serious issues there with the prime minister, Liz Truss. I mean, I've literally watched uh, some um, interviews with her. And when she's asked a tough question, she just kind of stares blankly and uh, she's not doing well. What's up with what do we need to know? here in Washington, D.C., what do our listeners need to know about the circumstances um, so surrounding Liz Truss and, and the political system seems in total disarray? Your thoughts? It is in complete disarray. Now, there's a very straightforward reason about this, because, of course, Britain is now in an economic downward spiral. I mean, it was before Liz Truss became prime minister. But, of course, they can't admit openly to themselves what the cause of this economic downward spiral is. They can't reopen questions like, um, you know, the way Brexit was managed. They certainly can't talk about the nature of the economic model they have. And of course, the big elephant in the room, 
the economic war of attrition they've been waging against Russia. So they can't talk about these things. So what has happened is that the conservative government is becoming increasingly destabilized um, because people in Britain know that they are in a downward spiral. If you live in London, you will see, you can see the evidence all around you. You can see signs turning up in grocery stores telling you to uh, uh, donate food for soup kitchens. I mean, there's a, there's a soup kitchen, food bank, uh, a place where people can get cheap clothes, all being run now by charities, all within a few meters of my house. So, I mean, you know, you, you sense that sense of collapse, but there's no response. There's no real practical response from the political class. So within the Conservative Party, what happens is they can't do anything practical. So they, in effect, retreat into ideological fundamentalism. And that is what happened with Liz Truss. She was elected because she said things that conservative members who are very rich, rather elderly, uh, 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 very, you know, uh, you know, not not representative of society. They want their taxes cut. That's what they always want. That's their major theme. So she was elected by the Conservative Party membership to do that. Because, as I said, nobody else is coming up with solutions. It gave her the open route to be elected. And, of course, when she becomes prime minister, it immediately becomes clear, firstly, that she has no idea how things really work. People like her don't. That she's completely out of her depth politically. And, of course, that the solutions that she's offering aren't really solutions at all. They're just actions that will intensify the conflicts within British society. They'll make it more unequal and they'll set more sections of the community off against each other. So now, on top of the economic, the spiraling economic crisis, we have a political crisis. And that political crisis is mainly focused for the moment on the Conservative Party. But don't forget that the Labour Party, even though it's now surging in the opinion polls, has no real answer to these problems either. So with the way that you've just laid that out, is Liz Truss Donald Trump in drag? Because, you know, I've never seen the two of them in the same place at the same time. And when you talk about ideological fundamentalism, that sounds, and, and, and she says things that the elite want to do but don't want to say, and she comes out and says, I'm a huge Zionist. I, I don't know that I, I hear many leaders speak in the context of Zionism. They talk about supporting Israel, but I don't hear them talking just that directly about that political ideology and supporting it directly. I think that's true. The only thing I would say is the fundamental difference between Liz Truss and Donald Trump is that Donald Trump is whatever you may think of him. I mean, he's a, a person, you know, who generates excitement. Whereas with Liz Truss, I mean, she's boring. I mean, she seems she's completely dull. She doesn't she doesn't connect with anybody. I mean, okay. Trump has his you a, fo know, a following, a, a devoted following. A devoted following. I mean, trust just doesn't have the charisma 
to generate even that. If you like, it's stripped down Trumpism without mm -hmm. without you know the you know the, the twist. So the without the personality, is, the personality, and um, she comes across very much as a very faceless apparatchik. She had uh, last week a series of utterly disastrous train crash interviews on local radio here in which she was confronted by voters. And it was it, it was excruciating to listen to. I mean, it was these long pauses when she's asked questions and you can see her struggling to, uh, to answer them. And, you know, people were saying, well, you know, the cost of my mortgage, my loan on my house is now rising and that's your fault. She didn't seem to understand that. She didn't seem to know how to respond to it. So mm -hmm. that's that's you know who Liz Truss is. I mean, as I said, it's uh, it's it's somebody who doesn't have the facility, the the ability to work crowds that Trump does, and who's perhaps even more fanatical about her program than Trump is. And um, as a result, I mean, she's. She's pulling the Conservative Party down the sinkhole. Now, one opinion poll put Conservatives at 21 percent and Labour at 54 percent. And that's not an outlier. So that gives you a sense of the political collapse that this government is experiencing. I've never known a party, a government party, come back and win an election from that level. So it looks to me as if we are in the final days of this conservative government. And how long? What will happen next? we got about a minute and a half. How, what, what happens next? I mean, if this something happens, would it be like someone would call for a snap election or a vote of no confidence? Or what would be the next move that would signify a change? By far the most likely prospect is that the Conservative Party, which can see electoral oblivion coming, they're going to try and launch a coup at some point, remove Liz Truss, bring somebody in who can hold things together until the election, try and win back some support, steady the ship. There's talk about Mike, Michael Gove being that person. The trouble is... He doesn't have a solution either. We are mm. in a situation where nobody has any answers. So steady the ship, but it's a sinking ship. You can't, you can't, you know, you, you might have changed the pilot or, or, <laughs> or, 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 or but, but it's still going down. And uh, nobody has any way of knowing how to sort of bail out, how to, you know, bring it back up again. Well, it's, they can admit anything except that there's a hole in the ship. So they can come up with any kind of solution. The one solution they can't come up with, deal with the sanctions that are that are driving them uh, uh, to the bottom of the sea. That is the iceberg. Exactly. In front of them. Alexander McCorris is the editor-in-chief at TheDuran.com. He's host of The Duran on YouTube. Also, he has his own show, Alexander McCorris on YouTube. Best thing out there for foreign policy, particularly anything going on in the EU. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. 
Washington is fuming after news that their attempts to control world oil prices will be thwarted by a reduction in output by OPEC plus one, the coalition. Also, the EU is preparing for blackouts, and the IMF meeting is the last stop before the world's upcoming economic storm. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. The Washington Post reports OPEC allies move to slash oil production, eliciting blistering White House response. White House officials reacted after the OPEC plus coalition moved to curb production in response to falling prices. I do recall, Dr. Linwood, very, very early in this conf- in, the, in the Ukraine conflict when Saudi Arabia and OPEC came out and said, uh, we're going to support our OPEC member, which is the plus one Russia. So your thoughts on all of this, what does it mean? Well, of course, uh, President Biden went to Saudi Arabia to try to broker uh, a deal for for an increase in oil uh, production. Uh, this has led to a decrease in oil production. So I say I say they're they're pretty much uh, uh, negating any influence that that Biden has over them. Um, and uh, this is com- coming, of course, at a at a very bad time for for um, um, in terms of the November elections. That OPEC is is saying that they'll still do this um, uh, production cut in November, but of course markets will start to respond to that immediately and and start to raise prices of of oil and therefore prices of gasoline. So this is coming at a bad time for, for um, uh, Democrats and for Biden as the leader of the, of the Democrats uh, in, in November. So I think, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Saudis and, of course, the Russians are very well aware of this election uh, effect that we'll have. And they're doing it anyway, which it, it tell, tells me that uh, they're not doing this willy-nilly. They have, they have a plan for, for how they move forward, uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, as allies. A coalition of oil-producing nations led by Russia and Saudi Arabia. We've been warned and we're all concerned about the relationship between Russia and China. Speak about this in the broader context of what does this say about the shift from the unipolar to the multipolar world that both President Xi Jinping and President Putin of Russia have been speaking about for a very long time. Yeah, well, we 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 find Russia and China are are part of a coalition uh, called to call the BRICS, which was initially um, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, and and South Africa. That that coalition has has expanded and is now including um, uh, Saudi Arabia and other other countries. Uh, they are going about the process of building. Uh, trade relations between between themselves, and with an understanding that uh, the, the Chinese-Russian coalition, in terms of productive capability and raw materials, uh, is is not only a um, uh, capable of creating a a response to Europe and 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 the U.S., but but three quarters of the world's population did not participate in in supporting the sanctions against Russia. That's more than half of the world's GDP. And so there is tremendous growth potential on that side. Saudi Arabia is, of course, looking to sell their oil to to countries that are growing. And in addition, they're realizing that the U.S., in in terms of what it's doing, 
with um, uh, with European countries, uh, uh, the, the relationship between the U.S. and Germany, for example, in, which is causing Germ- Germany to Germany's economy to decrease, just increases the customer base for U.S. natural gas, and uh, that is competitive to to oil. And so uh, I think Saudi Arabia and Russia are looking at the potential customers down the line in the developing world as opposed to the developed world. You know, uh, let me ask you about this. One what, one of the things we're seeing is, you know, just re- recently the um, the EU, uh, you know, the, under the power and the authority of the U.S. government of no doubt said, we're going to do this price cap on Russian gas. It seems to me, number one, that this is, in fact, retaliation for that. And it seems to me that every step that's been taken with um, towards uh, some level of sanctions against commodities has raised the cost of commodities. It seems to me that uh, going after commodities or sanctioning commodities creates at minimal the belief that there is some scarcity, whether there is or not. And raises the prices. So, in other words, don't mess around with commodities because all you can do is raise their prices. Your thoughts, Doctor Tawhid? Yeah, certainly. Europe was getting cheap oil and gas from 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 Russia. It was a benefit to Europe to do that, and uh, certainly a benefit to to Germany as the leader uh, of, of European countries to put sanctions on and and to try to put a price cap. Um, uh, one of the things that that's occurred is that Russia, instead of now selling their oil and gas directly uh, to Europe, uh, or at least there's a shutdown, a slowdown in that, has uh, has taken various paths that are called cutout paths to to simply get oil to, to certainly get oil to Europe through India and through even through China. But of course, that that puts another middleman in the process, which which is going to raise the price of, of that oil. So, so Europe is still buying oil and gas from uh, that's that's initially sourced in Russia. They're just paying a higher price for it uh, to try to put a cap on it on 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 Russian oil. Uh, what was uh, you know it, it's been on again and off again because I think the absurdity of it is is very apparent. And yes, uh, to put a cap on, on Russian oil just simply means that Russia won't sell Europe any oil or gas and uh, that uh, they'll have to buy it from somewhere else and the cost is going to go up. And to that point, the EU is preparing for blackouts this winter amid an energy crisis. An energy supply crunch tied to the war could cause widespread blackouts, and I think already is, uh, smaller blackouts in the EU. And they're trying to shore up their resources as temperatures drop, but particularly with the United States blowing up the Nord Stream 2, their options are really limited. It's going to get really, really cold. People are going to get really, really angry and really, really hungry. Well, yes, President Biden uh, uh, some some months ago was asked about uh, whether Nord Stream 2 would go forward. And he said definitely, you know, he, just not his words, but definitely it would not. Uh, by any means, uh, it would be it would not go forward. And so uh, the, the means was found by 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 sabotage. Uh, there's a, there's a report that uh, not all of the lines in the Nord Stream two were were damaged. There's possibly one line out of I think four that Correct. is still operational. Uh, there were protests the week before the sabotage uh, in Germany uh, for to to move forward uh, to open to to use the Nord Stream 
uh, pipelines, and then there was the sabotage. I would expect that since since the the total shutdown of Nord Stream two, the total destruction has not been has not occurred, that there will be increasing uh, uh, protests to get that line that is still available online. Uh, that might mean that the saboteurs need to come back again. <laughs> Certainly, it points points the finger away from Russia, somewhere else. So Europeans are not going to going to go for that. The question is, uh, how are Europeans, particularly German Germans, are going to to see themselves as being oh, beneficiaries of a relationship with 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 the U.S. when the U.S. is going to cause these back blackouts and uh, lack of heating oil and 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 heating capacity, and also the the shutdown of German industry as a result of lack of gas. Um, uh, at, at some point, European um, Europeans have to have to see that the the U.S. is not an ally. It's actually you know with friends like this who needs enemies uh, situation. And um, I would imagine that has to filter up the leadership at some point. Uh, so I expect uh, widespread uh, civil unrest in Europe um, as a result of these blackouts, which which were caused by the sanctions. And had had they not done the sanctions, everything would have been as it was. Yeah, I think the uh, the the Europeans have to realize that they're not um, partners in NATO; they're prisoners of NATO. Well, there's no situation so bad economically that Lawrence H. Summers can't make it worse, and he writes in an opinion poll: IMF World Bank meetings are the last stop before a coming economic storm. Your thoughts on that, Doctor Tahid? Oh, I think I think uh, the premise that there is a coming economic storm, a recession that is inevitable. I think I think they are right on this, um, um, but but their solution to it is for for these developing countries is to borrow more money uh, from the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, you can borrow that money, you can you can have deferred payments, but you end up in greater debt. It becomes a debt trap. And what the IMF and the World Bank will do with these developing countries when they cannot pay their debt is to um, have them sell their, their natural resources to, to, to financial institutions in order to pay that debt. Of course, developing countries have an alternative because the, the Chinese have been for a while in, in the process of developing an Asian development bank that can replace the IMF. And uh, I, I think with the, with the current shift in the from the unipolar to the multipolar world, that many of these developing countries will be looking not to the IMF and World Bank, but will be looking to the Asian uh, banks and um, um, in, in order to find um, loans and maybe even uh, money to pay off their dollar-denominated debt to the West. Uh, there is an alternative. So, so what what Summers is arguing is for the IMF and the World Bank to to be more lenient to to, to give away money now. Um, uh, to, for, for a greater reward later. I don't think developing countries, uh, many of them are going to, to go for this because they've seen this before and they know the debt trap that comes as a result of this. So, so it's, uh, yeah, I think there's a, a recession is inevitable, but developing countries have alternatives other than summer's, um, um, uh, alternative. And, and he says, while much will depend on national policy choices, the external environment will be enormous, enormously important for most countries. Global cooperation through the IMF and the World Bank matters a great deal. Well, with your point about the Chinese bank, I think that ship has already sailed. 
Lauren Summers is 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 whistling past the graveyard. Yeah, I think I think this is a uh, not a, maybe not a desperate attempt, but it is you know, seeing the inevitable coming. Uh, the question is, how can uh, uh, the the West not lose its uh, its hold on developing countries, which it, which have already shown shown again uh, they they did go with the sanctions. So so three quarters of the world's population, most of those in developing countries, have already shown that they're willing to go in a different direction than the West. Uh, monetarily, they they have an alternative. Yes, and I think that the alternative is going to be growing. There's this. There's discussion in BRICS. There's discussion in the uh, uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization about creating some new types of currency that are based on a basket of uh, commodities. And I think uh, that's we're going to have plenty to talk about when that happens, Doctor Tawhid. Yes, yes, we are. You've been listening to Doctor Linwood Tawhid. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Congressional Black Caucus has failed its constituency as the members and organization profit from their cozy neoliberal position in the globalist order. That's in an article on Black Agenda Report, and we have the author of that article, Margaret Kimberly. She's a Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. And you start by saying the Congressional Black Caucus annual legislative conference returned with the usual corporate sponsorships and obedience to the Democratic Party oligarchy. Joe Biden received a warm welcome from a group which does little except live off of a progressive reputation, which it has not deserved in a long, long time. Margaret Kimberly. Yeah, well, this was uh, the first um, in-person conference they'd had for for a, a couple of years, but it was the same old, same old, um, sponsored by uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon is this, as we all know, this corporate behemoth, treats its workers terribly, turns through people so much that they, in some places, are running out of them, fights against unions, high rates of injury, I could go on and on, and this allegedly progressive uh, organization had them as their major sponsor. Uh, of course, others, uh, um, petrochemical companies, uh, big pharma, uh, Congressman James Clyburn, who is, uh, you know, we're told is some kind of kingmaker, which he isn't, gets more money from big pharma than any other member of Congress. So when we hear that uh, they're going to negotiate Medicare drug prices, but not until 2026, and it will only be 10 drugs, it's not a surprise that um, – uh, when uh, Mr. Kingmaker is in the pocket of Big Pharma. So it was, um, uh, you know, the usual disappointment. Black people have so many needs that could be met with uh, uh, legislation, with these members of Congress using their uh, power on behalf of their constituents. But obviously, if uh, banks and pharmaceutical companies and oil companies are the sponsors, sponsors of the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, just to be clear, 
um, then we're going to, we're not going to see the actions that people need that would um, uh, make their lives better, the things that people want to see. You know, I'm glad that you made the point in your opening that it's lived off a progressive reputation. It has not deserved for a very long time, because when you go back to the early caucus, when you read, for example, uh, the first speech that was given at the keynote address that was given, it was called It's Not the Man, It's the Plan. Ossie Davis was the original, was the first keynote speaker at the first dinner. And he challenged the caucus to develop a plan for uh, a, a political plan for for progress. And we know that the caucus has moved as far away from that plan as it possibly can. Of course. But, you know, in the, the caucus was founded in the early 70s. It's 50 years now uh, since it was founded. And, and in that time, they were independent. At that time, the Democratic Party was not as much a corporate party as the Republicans, which is the case right now. Well, wait, let me jump in. Let me jump in quickly and say to, to that point that the founders of the caucus were members of the struggle and they had come out of their communities, been elected to office in their cities and towns as part of the struggle. We're now dealing with two or three generations removed from that, and they have not maintained that same focus. No, and they're, because they're a couple of generations removed, they've come up uh, uh, with the black political class, as it is now for Correct. this uh, buffer class uh, manufactured in the wake of the struggle in order to keep uh, demands from being made. The people who got the degrees at the top schools and got the good jobs and now know how to raise a lot of money. And they are very far removed from those original members like John Conyers and Shirley Chisholm and uh, Ron Dellums. And since that time, the Democrats um, have become the party of uh, the corporatist party, just like the Republicans, uh, the uh, a party of uh, big donors. I mean, Democratic presidential candidates raise a billion dollars. So that tells you who runs things. And it tells you that any um, uh, Democrat in office, including the so-called progressives, are not that progressive. They really would have to be revolutionary, which I think can be said of some of those early members. But a lot has changed in 50 years. I'm looking right now, and I see, uh, as an example, um, one of the things that they had in the past was an, uh, a, a, a dinner, and it honored the, account, uh, the accomplishments of Representative Gregory W. Meeks, a guy right now who's taking a lot of heat because he passed a bill that's basically an imperialist attack on Africa, where basically the U.S. can say to African nations, you can only do business with countries we want. If you do business with Russia then or China or whatever the case may be, then we can go after you. So even now, you know, they are oppressing not just black folks at home. But about black people worldwide, and uh, these people are celebrated as black leaders. Yes, it's uh, you know it's it's not the man; it is the plan. But now the plan is to get these people in high positions and do the bidding of the Democratic Party oligarchy. So Gregory Meeks, a congressman from Queens, New York, is 
uh, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. And uh, you get to be chair, not just by seniority, but uh, if you are going to be reliable, a reliable servant of the empire, and you're referring to this bill, I, I think it's H3, HR 7311, um, the malign, Stopping Malign Russian Influence in Africa Act, which will give the U.S. the ability to... Um, to uh, monitor African countries and their relationships with Russia and the entire African diaspora as well. It says that in the, the language of this bill, which has passed the, the House so far. But that is a very dangerous thing. It means that you and I and millions of other people are going to be monitored in some way by the government, that African countries uh, would lose their sovereignty, that the U.S. claims a a right to determine who they can and cannot talk to. And that is a problem when you have the man, a, a black face in a high place, but you don't have uh, the plan, the people's plan. And another example of that is Hakeem Jeffries and this whole Team Blue Political Action Committee. You had talked about the progressive nature of the original members of the caucus. Well, now uh, this this PAC led by Hakeem Jeffries, their major purpose is to be sure that progressive Democrats don't unseat less than progressive members of the Democratic Party. Yes, that's very funny to me. I don't know why they worry about that, because uh, people like AOC, um, you know, won primaries against establishment members and they get in and all they do is talk. So part of me thinks it's funny because I don't know what they're worried about because they, they certainly drop the hammer on these people and tell them what's what once they get in, assuming that they were ever serious in the first place. But they're not taking any chances, and um, they're making sure that we don't have democracy. That's all that is. Uh, uh, Democratic voters across the country should be able to vote for whomever they want. But they have put money uh, behind these people who are, you know, Democratic uh, congressional candidates these days. They're ex-military and ex-intelligence, and they're the ones who get the money, who get the, uh, the good publicity from corporate media. Those are the kinds of people they want in Congress. They don't even uh, want the um, uh, ineffectual gadflies, which is all some of these folks are. So, yes, and I remember Jeffries being considered a progressive, uh, also from New York, from Brooklyn. He was an assemblyman, and uh, he was one of those who was going to, you know, change things. But, you know, once these people get in, even if they were ever serious, they see uh, the handwriting on the wall, and they choose to be part of the club instead of being the people that their constituents need them to be. Actually, Margaret, I think that handwriting is on a check <laughs> rather than the wall. Um, Joe, Biden, you mentioned Joe Biden came there and he told some jokes and they were just a laughing and having a wonderful old time. But he kind of left out the fact that they had cut student uh, uh, loan debt relief uh, considerably two days before. And uh, while they're up to about 60, 70 billion dollars now going to Ukraine and Biden actually gives less to HBCUs than uh, they did under the Trump administration. Margaret. Yeah, uh, Biden was the keynote speaker, which I, you know, I suppose they were very proud of. 
But um, the Congressional Black Caucus should uh, be opposing Democratic establishment uh, politics. Instead, we get uh, Jim Crow Joe bragging about uh, negotiating drug prices, which is not true. The student loan debt relief was minuscule, $10,000 or $20,000. And then, as you point out, they said, well, if it's a private loan, you don't get any student uh, debt relief. And yet, they, you know, he's there getting applause, claiming he's done something he hasn't. And members like Ayanna Presley, a member of the squad, allegedly a big progressive, she's, uh, people should t- check out her, her tweets. Uh, her Twitter posts are all about uh, student loan debt relief, and people will be able to buy houses, and they'll be able to create wealth for their families. And I'm like, with $20,000? I don't think so. But um, that's the role they play, right? When there's a Democrat, when there's a Republican in office, they give token opposition. When there's a Democrat uh, in office, they're just mouthpieces for that person. And, uh, and yes, he, bla- he bragged about the amount of HBCU money. He says, $5 billion with the B. That's with the B. And it turns out not to be so much. And what is that to brag about? HBCUs are, um, should be supported anyway. Um, it's not like he's done something that he should not have done in the first place. But as you point out, it wasn't even um, as much of an accomplishment as he claimed. And you write, of course, CBC leaders aren't stupid. And they held sessions on topics of importance, such as black uh, maternal health, obesity and stopping gun violence. But a closer look shows a mishmash of corporatist nonsense, which absolves them of taking effective action on a number of critical issues. Margaret. Yeah, they I was I was looking at the the sessions they had and it was pretty meager. I mean, there were things, as I pointed out, some things that people are are interested in and care about and that they deserve action on. But the rest of it was just ridiculous. Uh, You know how to. Uh, you know, black first first time black homeowners, how we can help them. I don't know. Maybe raise the minimum wage. Maybe do something about inflation. Um, um, maybe help maybe, people. Maybe maybe cancel all their student to- debt. <laughs> all cancel all their student debt. Maybe have Medicare for all. Which once again, they'll go on Twitter and claim that's what they want, but they don't do anything about it because Joe Biden said he would veto it. Right. So um, so it was a lot of, uh, even when they talked about something serious, it still was not in a way uh, that really addresses issues because they're determined not to address the issues. They are a self-satisfied group of people. They've got a good gig. Most of them don't have to worry about losing their seats. They'll have their, their, their congressional seats for as long as they want them, and life is pretty good. For them, as long as they don't rock the boat and they are determined not to rock the boat. Margaret Kimberly is the Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist. Go to blackagendareport.com. A lot of great stories, a lot of great information. I highly recommend it. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. aims to turn Taiwan into a giant weapons depot. Also, we discuss the importance of China's industrial machine to the U.S. and the world economy. Joining us to discuss this, we have George Koo. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer. George, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Garland. Hi, Wilmer. The New York Times says... U.S. aims to turn Taiwan into a giant weapons depot. Officials say Taiwan needs to become a porcupine with enough weapons to hold out if the Chinese military blockades and invades it, even if Washington decides to send troops. Uh, your thoughts on that, George Koo? <laughs> well, it, uh, I suppose in a way, this signifies that the U.S. is, is taking getting Taiwan involved in a proxy war, it's, it's a step in, the, in that direction. Um, instead of selling secondhand outmoded weapons for billions, now they're selling uh, more effective, I guess, mobile defensive weapons for billions, and maybe a different, different part of the military-industrial complex will profit, but nevertheless, uh, the uh, military-industrial product is going to make money, uh, rest assured. How is that going to make Taiwan more defensible? You know, I don't know. I think it, it will certainly, if there was going to be a war, an invasion, it's going to make it more bloody. It's going to have more casualties. Does it mean that the Americans are ready to send troops? I don't think that's necessarily a commitment. Certainly, the number of troops they have in uh, in Japan and in South Korea wouldn't be enough uh, to uh, to come to, you know, substantial assistance to Taiwan. And I guess the other part of it is Taiwan would have to go under go some serious training to be able to make use of that weapon. And uh, before they can really inflict damage, should should the PLA uh, consider invading. There isn't any indication in my view that the PLA is ready to take that step. Um, they certainly used the Pelosi visit to change what they considered to be the the um, the line of uh, the line of restraint, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're ready to invade. I think if Biden is seriously intent on creating a conflict in the war, they would actually have to send American troops and base it in Taiwan. And that would clearly be a hostile act that the, the China, that China will have to react to. And it probably would lead to war. But that's not a proxy war. That's going to be a war involving American boots on the ground, and it's going to involve American casualties. So all in all, I believe that we are ratcheting up the tension, and it's not going to lead to any good, doing anybody any good. I go back to a couple of things that, well, one thing that we say constantly on the show, and that is all of this to... Uh, prepare for China's invasion of Taiwan, 
but I've never heard or read anybody in China saying they're going to invade Taiwan. So this seems to be a uh, projection by the United States to turning Taiwan into an arms depot or a weapons stockpile. Well, what happened to the weapons that were stockpiled in Ukraine? Russia blew them all up. So I would think that the same thing is going to happen in Taiwan. But, but here's really the point. In this New York Times piece, it says, but the effort to transform Taiwan into a weapons depot faces challenges. The U.S. and its allies have prioritized sending weapons to Ukraine, which is reducing those countries' stockpiles. And here's the line. And arms makers are reluctant to open new production lines without a steady stream of long-term orders. That's what this is about, a steady stream of long-term orders. George Koo. Well, I think you're right. I think you could interpret this um, plan to to stockpile uh, the depot as the beginning of a steady order, and uh, of course, you know, a steady order means replenishing that what you have in the depot and uh, replenishing those that's been sent to Ukraine would be part of the steady order, um, I suppose. But uh, you know, I I just have a very strong personal distaste. For all of, all of this warmongering and, and and weapon development and weapon sales, um, it I don't see how this is benefiting the American people. It's benefiting a, a certain sector of the Wall Street, but that, that's about all we can say about it. Well, and here, when I look at this article, the United States would not be able to resupply Taiwan as easily as Ukraine. So they're already saying. We're going to turn Taiwan into Ukraine. Here's the plan. We go to, to the two other world powers, Russia and China. We go to their border. We look, pack a country on their border with weapons until they attack the country, which we know they're going to do because we'd do the same thing if they were to do that in Mexico. And then we try to take them out with sanctions. Need they be any more open than they are, George? Well, you know, the only thing is, Applying the sanctions to Russia after after Russia invaded Ukraine has severe blowback consequences, and uh, and, and it's it's a it's been a lose lose uh, proposition for everybody, and especially the EU countries, but certainly the American economy has also been affected. Now, much less the Ukrainians and the Russians. It's it's a effectively an all around uh, lose if sanctions were applied to China and as you folks have the next article that is a that is an absolute disaster for everybody it's not going to do it's not going to do Americans any any good it would have to be a severe setback it's going to make the economy much worse than where it is now. Um, and, and if Dow Jones is any, uh, any major, you know, we probably would see that tank, uh, if there, if there was such a hostility between U.S. and China. Sanctions really do not work. It's a, it's a two-edged sword. And President Biden said last month, the United States is, quote, not encouraging, end quote, Taiwan's independence, adding, quote, that's their decision, End quote. 
Well, if it's their decision, and from what I understand and from what you uh, talk about quite often, the people of the, the Taiwanese don't want this. Right. Right. I mean, the Taiwan people, you know, the the first preference of the Taiwan people is is what they call status quo. They would love to have it the way it is and not raise the tension, uh, not necessarily unify with China, but also not declare independence. All of this is being swayed by the American propaganda promising support, military support, and, sub- and backing and bolstering up the DPP, which is the party in, in power right now, as in favor of um, not the status quo, but to move the line, keep pushing the red line between Taiwan and, uh, and the mainland. So it, Biden... I don't know if he is doing it deliberately, being crafty, or he is just being sleepy and not knowing what he is saying. But he says one thing today and something else tomorrow, and his people are always, you know, following the horse and sweeping up the sweeping up the uh, the droppings as he goes, um, and to clean up whatever he said. I, it's it's a um, it could be you could attributed to deliberate ambiguity. Zachary Carabell at Sheer Post writes, China is not the enemy. It's an, it's, it is America's indispensable economic ally. He goes on to say, despite the militaristic noise, China and the U.S. share an economic dependency that would rupture the domestic economy of both nations if severed. And guess what, uh, George? The everyday people would suffer the most and the billionaires would still find a way to move around the world or move their money around the world or whatever the case may be. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, some maybe some of their investments might might go awry, but uh, but absolutely, the article is is right on uh, in terms of the damage that would inflict on both sides. There's, there is no winner when you when you break up a integrated uh, uh, economy, the two economies. You can't win that way. But I will say and point out that r- right now, investments going into China by multinational companies from Germany, from the U.S., from elsewhere, has been increasing. They have not been pulling out because they know part of their financial future and security is going to be dependent on the China market continuing to expand and grow and continuing to have that middle class, which is already much bigger than the U.S. middle class. Um, I, I, I don't quite understand the logic that we have in Washington, but we are, we seem to be heading towards disaster with a capital D. Well, to that point, there, uh, the second paragraph in this article, unlike historic attempts and successes by the U.S. to dictate or coerce countries to bend to their will, China has proven that it will not fall under pressure from the American government. And I think a lot of that has to do with China has changed its perspective of itself and the white supremacist mindset in the United States has not adapted to that new Chinese reality. And, and you are, you know, I think 90% on, but I would add a little bit more to that. And in that the China is now strong enough as the large, you know, virtually the largest economy, depending on the account, 
that they don't have to toe the line when the, when Uncle Sam says move. Um, and they know that they can stand up to the pressure that U.S. is trying to exert. Um, the trade war that Trump started certainly hasn't has not done anything, has not worked. And, and if anything, they should Biden administration should have learned a lesson from that. But instead, they double down and making everything worse. So it's that article is so sensible that I think it's going to fly right over the heads of this of these people in Washington. Unfortunately, well, the unfortunate thing about it is it misses something, and that is that the U.S.'s economic system is partially, if not completely, set up on the exploitation of de- developing nations. And the problem they have is that China will go to a developing nation and give them, uh, you know, a, a a fair deal, and the U.S. goes to a developing nation and says, "Give us your stuff, or we'll kill you." And then when they give us they give them give us their stuff, we kill them anyway. Well, <laughs> yeah. And that's why, as we have discussed in previous programs on Critical Hour, that fewer and fewer countries are lining up behind the U.S. doctrine of hegemony, and more and more folks are lining up behind China because it's a it's a give and take, and it's a, um, a win-win arrangement when China goes in and helps with their infrastructure, helps build up the trade relationships, and uh, it's it's just all around. They can see the benefit. They don't see the damage or the hurt. And quickly, there is another piece why Biden thinks he needs a new Cold War. We don't seek a Cold War, declared Biden, but uh, the article says that's likely not how everyone views the prospect of a new Cold War. (laughs) I, I can't. You know, it's hard for me to explain what Biden is thinking because he be, he he bewilders and befuddles me, and, uh, and <laughs> it's hard for me to to <laughs> rationalize statements that he's making. Um, he's saying he doesn't need a cold war, and somebody is saying, but he wants a cold war. Well, heck, you know, where does where do we come down on thinking about what does he want to do? But certainly, whether it's a cold war or a hot war, um, we're not moving away from raising the tension and develop hostile relationships. We should be thinking about collaborating and cooperating and looking for mutually beneficial relationships. But that doesn't seem to be in the genes of Uncle Sam, or at least not within this administration, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens in 2022 and 24. It doesn't look very good right now, as far as I'm concerned, gentlemen. George Koo is a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. 
Washington is fuming after news that their attempts to control world oil prices will be thwarted by a reduction in output by the OPEC plus one coalition. Also, U.S. money and intelligence is driving the attempted color revolution protest in Iran and Israel has rejected Lebanon's offer regarding their border dispute. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. It's always great to be with you guys. Middle East I reports, U.S. accuses OPEC plus of aligning with Russia. Gulf states deny politics at play. U.A. says production cut was technical and not political. But Washington said is it exploring ways to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. This is interesting, Leith, because it really seems like the Middle Eastern countries are pushing back against uh, Washington in a way that we haven't really seen before. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah. And I mean, yesterday uh, I, I went and watched that whole uh, press conference of OPEC. And I, let me tell you, it was my first time ever watching an OPEC press conference. <laughs> uh, and uh, to see how the uh, members, uh, ministers that are there, including the Saudi minister that was chairing the press conference, were combative with uh, Western media um, and, and, you know, humiliating, for instance, uh, Reuters and uh, refusing to answer any of their questions, claiming that Reuters is uh, making up stories. Um, that, that was already something that I've not been seen before. Uh, you know, the Saudi government speaking back at Western media. Uh, but what was interesting in the press conference is that uh, the Minister of Oil of Saudi Arabia pulled out a chart. He put it up on the um, on the screen that showed in reality that the prices of oil have not increased uh, since the beginning of the war on uh, in Ukraine, um, more than six percent, while the price of gas, of course, is over 200 percent and and the price of coal has increased also almost 200 percent and he showed also how the prices of gas as gasoline at the pumps in europe and the united states have uh, increased in a drastic manner um, therefore pointing out that uh, opec even with these cuts uh, will not be really affecting the prices uh, that the western populists and media should be questioning the refineries in Europe and the United States and the uh, gasoline companies that are selling the stations, the gas stations and their governments uh, for the taxes that they're putting on these uh, on, at the pump uh, to figure out where the crazy uh, exaggerated prices of gasoline are uh, coming from. And I will assume that uh the chart that he put up was different than the chart that Netanyahu used in Congress to show that uh, that that Iran was building a bomb. That it, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a handmade chart in crayon. No, it was actually tracking all the prices of all these commodities. He even put up, like uh, these charts that are from Bloomberg and Reuters, and he's like, "These are your own charts showing that." Uh, you know, uh, that the Gulf countries and the OPEC uh, countries in general are actually helping keep the price stabilized. And uh, so he threw back at them uh, these claims that uh, the Gulf countries or OPEC are trying to uh, monopolize or uh, act like a cartel. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says on behalf of the president, it's clear that OPEC plus is aligning with Russia. 
with today's announcement. The president is disappointed by the short-sighted decision of OPEC. Any sense of how those comments were received? Uh, in that press conference, all these uh, Western media attempt to ask these questions, and they were rebuffed multiple times. Uh, the ministers uh, said that this organization, OPEC, is an economic organization and will refuse to address these political uh, implications. That, uh, But it was clear that they were also agitated uh, for the take that the West is, is, is um, you know, blaming them for um, any future possibilities of, uh, you know, problems in the world markets. And uh, what, what, what I think is important for everybody to understand is that, um, you know, the production uh, of, of goods all around the world has drastically degre- decreased with all these factories shutting down in Europe and so forth. China is still under lockdown till to this moment. And there's this, the, you know, the West is accumulating, the United States and Europe are accumulating a surplus underground from whatever they're buying from the Gulf and other OPEC countries. And these OPEC countries are mad at that. They want to right now cut down uh, the sales to be able to rejuvenate their own stockpile in the case of uh, China reopening its markets uh, and to be able to respond to that need when it comes. Axios reports Israel rejects Lebanon changes to draft maritime deal. The U.S. mediated talks. I think I see a problem already between Israel and Lebanon over their maritime border dispute faced a major crisis Thursday after Israel rejected the Lebanese comments on the draft agreement and claimed they were a material breach of the text. What's happening with that late proof? Of course, uh, this is like a right now. A sketchy moment. Uh, everybody, uh, when um, the American quote-unquote negotiator, who happens to be an ex-officer in the Israeli uh, military, uh, came with his uh, suggestions, and the Lebanese government responded positively with uh, just a few tweaks. Uh, everybody expected that things will move on from that point, and and there will be a de-escalation of hostilities. But as it uh, looks right now. The uh, because of the multiple factionalism that is happening within the Israeli politics, uh, Netanyahu blaming the uh, government of uh, the current government of any losses that Israel may have because of this deal with Lebanon, and even within the coalition government that is there right now, there's infighting around this, uh, and also the court, an Israeli court, just now today also ruled that the Knesset and the Parliament of uh, sorry the um, the government of Israel, the prime minister, cannot sign this deal without bringing it back to the Knesset, and they're discussing it now to court in court. So what does this mean in general? Is that the Israelis are delaying once more, and we know clearly that Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the secretary general of Hezbollah, said there will be no more delays. Uh, we're right now tittering at the edge of uh, uh, an open conflict. And uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid says that he would not compromise on Israel's economic and security interests. You know, that that phrase seems to be the catch-all defense phrase that they use whenever they don't want to do something. It's almost uh, like accusing someone of being anti-Semitic, that that's supposed to shut down all discussion. And 
how would an agreement of this nature, uh, how would it jeopardize security, economic, well, I can understand the economic side, but the security interests? Well, the Israelis were wanting to have a almost like a five kilometer buffer zone in the waters, but actually in the Lebanese waters. And so the Lebanese government rejected that and uh, said, you know, if there is to be a buffer zone, it has to be equal. You know, this is how no man's lands usually are drawn between states. Uh, it's it's an equal part of each state's uh, territory within this no man's land. But the Israelis uh, do not want that. They want to be able to use all their territorial waters while denying uh, Lebanon uh, five kilometers uh, wide uh, area of, of their uh, territorial waters. And, and this is unacceptable for any self-respecting state. You know, as soon as I looked at that article, the U.S. mediated talks between Israel and Lebanon. So the U.S. empire is allegedly mediating talks between one of its colonies and one of the states that it is trying to wipe out and destroy, um, it, it seems to me that that's just further evidence that, I mean, the whole thing is kind of a fraud, um, in my opinion. Your thoughts, Leith? Oh, yeah, definitely it's a fraud. And uh, clearly the resistance in Lebanon knows that. Uh, everybody in the street here in Lebanon laughs at the fact that this is an Israeli-American ex-officer of the IDF that is uh, supposed to be the uh, unbiased uh, mediator. <laughs> of course, this is, you know, a delusion. And, uh, you know, we, we are seeing right now the result of this bias as, as things fall apart. In fact, to that point, the article from the Times of Israel says, over the weekend, the Biden administration's energy envoy, Amos Hochstein, presented what was seen as the final proposal aimed at addressing competing claims, seen as the final proposal by whom? Because I don't know that Lebanon saw this as the final proposal. Yeah, of course. The Americans are trying to enforce uh, under, you know, the, impose. with a gun to their, yes, they're trying to impose on Lebanon this this deal with the, with a gun to their, the head of the whole country, uh, while, you know, because we don't have electricity here, there's a shortage of gasoline and diesel and so forth because of the sanctions and the uh, war in Syria and so on. And that's what the Americans are trying to take advantage of after the, uh, now we're in the third year of the economic collapse in Lebanon. The uh, Lebanese pound is almost uh, 40,000 to an American dollar. So the Americans were hoping that all these pressures uh, and the fact that uh, Lebanon needs to elect a president and a prime minister in the upcoming days uh, because of the constitutional deadlines, that maybe all these pressures would force Lebanon to acquiesce to, to the Zionists more of their land and their resources. And thank God for the resistance in Lebanon. That will not uh, happen. One last uh, uh, subject. The largest cover, color revolution attempt in recent Iranian history is led by a woman on Washington's payroll. And we have the facts. That's what Orinoco Tribune's article, Dirty Money, Meet the U.S. Agent Driving the CIA-Led Riots in Iran, has to say, Laith Marouf. Oh, this is a, a big story, definitely. And uh, it even gets bigger because today, uh, you know, after this article was written, uh, today, there was arrests in uh, in Iran of two French nationals uh, with uh, videos of them, uh, you know, having meetings with uh, 
demonstrating org- organizers uh, and, uh, you know, confessions that they worked for the French intelligence services. They, the, you know, every country has problems. The, the, what's happening right now in, in Iran and in most countries where color revolutions uh, occur is that the West is uh, instigating and, and exasperating the problems in these countries in hopes that the governments collapse. Doesn't mean that there is no issues of, uh, you know, women's rights or so forth, but that's that's a global issue, uh, and every country has its problems. You know, imagine if uh, China and Russia and Iran start funding demonstrations of uh, Black Lives Matter or indigenous uh, uh, rebellions in the United States and Canada. We will clearly call those color revolutions, although there is a just cause behind them. Well, we know that there has been that, you know, particularly when Black Lives Matter first uh, came to the forefront, there were allegations that it was inspired and it was co-opted by outside forces. And of course, there was the whole bogus Russiagate scenario. So the West, of course, um, is always looking for the for the boogeyman. And we, and in the end, it turned out that the Black Lives Matter was just a Democrat's front. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Recent polls show that young people want to cut the defense budget and end arms sales to Israel. Also, Ukraine's bid to join NATO falls flat. Joining us now to discuss these stories and more, we have Ariel Gold. Ariel is the executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the oldest peace and justice organization in the U.S., started in 1915. Ariel, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, well, you know what? This is, I am embarrassed to say, this is the first I've heard of the oldest organization. I heard of all the new ones. Can you, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, your website, Twitter, where people can find about it? Yeah. So let me just start by saying we started actually in Europe in 1914. The U.S. chapter started in 1915. And we originated in opposition to World War One, And, uh, at the time, it was a Christian organization. It's, we're now an interfaith organization, but um, we formed to support conscientious objectors to World War One. And unfortunately, these wars just haven't ended. So we are still supporting pacifism and conscientious objection to war. And then just some neat facts about our history. We were heavily involved in the civil rights movement, so much so that Uh, Martin Luther King gave his name. He was a member of only two organizations in his entire lifetime. Most people know the the, um, Southern Christian uh, Leadership Conference. He was Leadership Conference. He was also a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. I have his membership card in my office. And uh, such greats as uh, 
Gandhi have written for us in our magazine. So quite a, a rich history. And your website? The website is forusa.org. And our Twitter handle is F-O-R-U-S-A. Oh, that's an easy one, F-O-R. Even, even people like me can remember that. There Respons- you go. <laughs> Responsible statecraft. Young people want to cut defense budget, end arms sales to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Young Americans appear highly skeptical of Washington's ability to improve the world through military force. And I think that's a very positive thing to see young people looking in another di- direction. Your thoughts, Ariel Gold? Well, let, let's just take a moment to recognize that we don't have universal health care in this country, that young people cannot afford to go to college, do not have health care, cannot get jobs that, that support their lives at a, you know, at a decent salary. And yet we have spent somewhere in the range of possibly $40 billion. Or we've committed somewhere in the range of $40 billion so far to this war in Ukraine. And our support for the war, it really just keeps the war going. We've given a teeny amount of lip service to uh, negotiations, but not really much. We haven't put our money where our mouth is. And so much so that, um, you know, when the war in Ukraine first broke out, uh, the, a leader of the, of the European Union encouraged Russian men to defect and said, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, house you here in, in Europe, you know, please defect. This is a way to do it. But then the U.S. started arming the daylights out of Ukraine, and Zelensky asked all the Western countries to close their borders to Russians trying to flee. And uh, now when Putin has announced a draft, around the same number, at least up to 300,000 Russian men immediately fled the country. And I don't know if they can get out any further because Latvia closed its borders. Finland is in the, uh, said that they're thinking of closing their borders. The EU has suspended visa-less travel for Russians. And you get to the U.S., and uh, the White House said, Russians defecting are welcome, and we encourage them to apply for asylum. But, come on, how easy is it to apply for asylum in the U.S., especially from all the way over there? We, ha- we have to give more than words. We have to give actual logistical support. It's also uh, interesting following this uh, this piece, a majority of respondents, 18 to 29, told pollsters that the U.S. should cut its budget and arms sales to Saudi Arabia and Israel and emphasize diplomacy over yes. other tools when engaging with the world. And you take that along with the other report, several military branches poised to miss recruitment targets for 2022. So the Army has only met 70% of its 2022 recruiting goal, and other areas of the military are um, experiencing similar, similar problems, the Army and the Navy and the Marines. So not only is the polling data stating what it's stating, but when you look at what's happening actually on the ground at this recruiting s- centers, that's matching the polling data. Absolutely. And the polling data that was also done by responsible statecraft, I'm not sure if it's in that same one, said that uh, the majority of Americans want diplomacy to end the war in Ukraine, even if that means Ukraine giving up concessions to Russia. So, you know, we're, we're at a state, and this is encouraging, that Americans, and especially young people, are fed up 
with this war economy that, of course, prevents us from having a supportive economy where we can, you know, support a transition to green energy to save our planet, where we can get our people to work doing that, you know, doing that transition where we can have health care and education for our people. And Ariel, you know, it's funny that, you know, I was looking at, I was kind of looking at your website, but I was just thinking, so I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who called and said, Garland, I listen to your shows all the time, but I disagree with you. You think that the U.S. is wrong in this, and I think Russia's wrong in this. What do you have to say? And I said, here's the ultimate. Our arguments are irrelevant if we're all dead in a nuclear war. Regardless of what anybody thinks, my opinion is what should happen is the people, whoever the powerful people, NATO, the the Russians, whatever, need to sit down, come up with an a. Uh, you know, some kind of an agreement to end the war diplomatically, to have a ceasefire, to end this thing so that it doesn't get to a point that we all end up gone. What difference does it make if me and some other schmuck argue all day about who's right or wrong? We need a diplomatic resolution for all of us to survive. Ariel. Well, and if you ask me, all the sides are wrong. Yes, Russia's wrong. Ukraine is wrong. They're keeping it going. We're definitely wrong pouring in the weapons endlessly rather than supplying diplomacy. And uh, yes, absolutely. And it's not just a nuclear war that we need to be afraid of. Russia just announced that they are now the owners of the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And then uh, Ukraine, Zelensky's government, told told the Ukrainian workers in the nuclear power plant, not to go along and not to work. Well, what happens if they don't work? We get a meltdown. Um, possibly, you know, it, it's the equivalent of dropping a nuclear bomb over there, and it can make all of Europe unlivable. So this is, you you cannot overstate how dangerous this situation is and how dangerous the situation has been since this war began. And yet we are all the sides are thinking about winning in these absolutist terms, this absolutist, you know, Russia wants to win by taking Ukraine. Ukraine wants to win by giving an inch to Russia. The U.S. wants to win by, uh, what is it, Lloyd Austin? Weakening Russia or something. Russia as a world power, removing them as a world power. And uh, the truth is nobody's winning, right? The dead are piling up. The uh, pollution and the carbon emissions from these (laughs) weapons of war are continuing. We have refugees left and right from Ukraine. We have young men fleeing from Russia, leaving their families. Nobody is winning this. And the stakes keep getting higher. And, uh, you know, there is something that we can do at this moment uh, as citizens and that this country should be doing, which is supporting those who are refusing to fight. Because it's not just Russians who don't want to be drafted. God damn, I wouldn't want to be drafted. But uh, it's not just them. There have been uh, tens of thousands of, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, tens of thousands from Belarus, tens of thousands of Belarusians have fled and have gotten out to avoid fighting. And in Ukraine, even despite uh, the country's borders having been uh, closed to men of, of fight of draft age, and even despite conscientious objection there being suspended um, as a possibility, um, 
over 100,000 and possibly many hundreds of thousands have been, have either fled or been detained trying to flee. And that's despite untold years in prison for trying to flee. But there are people who don't want to fight. And this is an opportunity for us to lift up those who are waging peace, those who are refusing to endanger our entire world for whatever reason. I think it's also important from a broader historical context, there were about 210,000 Americans that were charged with felonies in in uh, uh, protesting the Vietnam War, and about 100,000 Americans left the country in, in protest to the Vietnam War. So to your point— there are people all over the world and there are people for generations that have that have not wanted to engage in this type of conflict. Zelensky's NATO bid falls flat. Well, thank he, God. He, he put a he put a an expedited request in to try to expedite um uh, World, U- War Ukraine's, World War 3. World War 3. expediting World War 3. To try to expedite you, you, World War 3. Ukraine's admission into NATO and Turkey said we're, we we don't forget we can still put a stop to this. So to your point, and and Biden said early on that there was no way in the world that Ukraine was going to be allowed into NATO. Ukraine should not be allowed into NATO, and NATO should dissolve itself. This is a moment where we could take a, a message from these brave Ukrainians and Russians and Belarusians who are refusing to fight, and we as America in. Instead of escalating this, instead of continuously escalating this with more lethal weapons and refueling weapons and so on, we could take the the big move. We could begin to disable NATO. We could start removing nuclear warheads that are the closest to Russia's border. We could start dismantling them. What if we begin a, a you know a, a competition of who could who could deescalate, who could disarm? We might have a very different world. And the other thing is, uh, uh, and that is um, Representative Jim McCovern is bringing up U.S. sanctions. And here we now are looking at a circumstance where there, you know, literally people in um, Europe may be suffering, could die, could freeze. We've got hospitals that could be out of um, out of power because of energy. I mean, this is a very dangerous situation we're having where just seniors could die because they don't have the proper care or things of that nature. It's very dangerous for people. Your thoughts on the the sanctions and that part of it. We've got about, we're good, two and a half minutes. Well, look, I am no fan of Russia and their invasion was completely illegal and horrific. But, and if those sanctions were to, if we had any idea that sanctions worked, okay, maybe that's an, an avenue to explore. But look at the countries we've sanctioned. Look at Iran. Look at Cuba. We know that the sanctions do not accomplish what the U.S. tries to accomplish, but what they do is hurt the everyday people. We know that, and we don't see our sanctions working, and yet we continue to use them. And why? Because it's not really about uh, the outcome. It's about it's about suffering and showing our, you know, flexing our, in this case, economic muscles. Ariel Gold is the executive director for the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the oldest peace and justice organization in the U.S. Ariel, one more time, where can people find your information online and your website? Sure. You can find us at F-O-R-U-S-A. That's also our Twitter handle. And I encourage folks who are listening to read my latest article with Medea Benjamin, one of the co-founders of Code Pink, um, in Jacobin. All right. 
You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Anti-government speech in the West has become synonymous with, with sedition. John Whitehead argues that the Biden administration's crackdown on so-called domestic terrorism is a thinly veiled attack on the growing dissent against authoritarian rule. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, and you can find all of his stuff at Rawl, R-A-L-L, Rawl.com. Ted Rawl, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, Garland. John Whitehead says any anti-government speech has become a four-letter word. In more and more cases, the government is declaring war on what should be protected political speech. What say you, Ted Rawl? Well, as a political cartoonist, I have a bit of a stake in this discussion, Um, and uh, as does every American. um, It is a, uh, a very interesting fact of the American Constitution that it protects speech that challenges the system itself uh, very directly. And the founding fathers, you know, they, they put that into the document uh, with the sort of belief uh, that was uh, from its time, at the risk of sounding originalist, that governments uh, needed to be replaced from time to time and uh, that that wouldn't happen if there wasn't the freedom to criticize them. Jefferson famously thought revolutions should happen every 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, I don't think anyone who signed the Constitution thought that this system would still be in place more than 200 years later. And I don't think any of them would think that it should have. Uh, But, you know, it's kind of a contradiction. And so, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, presidents from both parties and regimes from both parties have repeatedly uh, been, uh, you know, they they have violated First Amendment rights uh, of free speech, and uh, they do it in a number of ways. So, you know, this what we are seeing now with a lot of the uh, January 6th protesters and uh, rioters who have been uh, charged for, uh, in some cases, not for trespassing, but just for participating in the event in the first place. And 99% of the people who went, you know, they just went they attended, they left, they didn't do anything uh, illegal, they didn't break in t- into the Capitol or anything. Um, you know, they, it, is, it is worrisome. And uh, I, think, I think he has a point. I mean, I think, you know, you can take issue with some of the details of the way he, he poses it. But I think the broader sense is it's true. Free speech is always in, in great danger in this country. And what's also very interesting in terms of the way that uh, individuals are being deplatformed, is the government is engaging in censorship, and that's when you, when you talk about freedom of speech, that's one of the that's always been one of the big no nos, which is punishing someone before the the speech is spoken. Uh, before the statement is made, you have been able to punish the person after the fact, but they are going on a rampage and stifling conversation before the conversation is even had. 
Yeah, prior restraint or uh, exactly. or encouraging self-censorship is also, uh, you know, it's a huge issue. Uh, you know, the problem with the First Amendment is that it's actually kind of a weak, uh, you know, it's weak because it only protects uh, free speech that's censored by a government agency. And uh, most of the time, speech is, is really censored by private corporations or publicly traded corporations like social media companies that, for example, are you know going to label or keep this particular conversation from being distributed freely. Um, and so um, the thing is that in all of these cases, it's not like these corporations are just simply uh, you know, making independent decisions, in most, if not all cases, they are either kowtowing to or sucking up to or collaborating directly or taking orders from the government. So what you really have is uh, First Amendment violations by proxy, uh, where you would have to, but it's, but it's very difficult to make a First Amendment case under the Constitution when it's a private company that is uh, doing the censorship, even if it's at the behest of a government agency. Yeah, and and you you make a good point because the gov the U.S. government has found a way to do that with everything. You know, we see like the Booz Allen Hamilton. So now the CIA wants to do spying, the NSA wants to grab your stuff, and they just bring in a contractor to do it. Hey, it wasn't us; it was Booz Allen Hamilton. It was you know. So they do that with everything. And now when it comes to you're saying things that we don't like, okay, you have a Twitter, you have a Facebook. We saw Alan McLeod's work recently where he showed that. All of these FBI, CIA, ostensibly former uh, employees are now not only working for Google, not only working for Twitter, not only working for Facebook. They are specifically in the areas of the company that determine what is allowed to be free and spoken on the platform. So in the same way that they've done with their intelligence agencies, with the military contractors, on and on and on. It seems to me the social media are now just contractors with former, and I'm using air quotes on that, government employees, and 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 this is a, a basically an end around the Constitution, Ted. Yeah, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think uh, Twitter and Facebook and these other companies recruit these people simply because of their technological acumen. I think they're uh, picking them because of their connections to government and the fact that they're, uh, you know, the government wants those links and social media companies think it's important and valuable for them to have them. Not to, you know, let's not forget Amazon, for example, has a massive, uh, I know it's not a social media company, but they have a massive Pentagon contract for the, cl for cloud services um, and other agencies as well, no doubt, uh, intelligence community and so on. So, uh, you know, the, the thing is, the uh, the the marsh, you know, the the swamp in Washington, it's it's not just government. It's a it's a corporate governmental swamp, and it's uh, it it reaches everywhere. Moving to another uh, story, Ro Kahana tells President Biden to cut off weapons to Saudis as OPEC agrees to slash oil supply. Yesterday, Kahana urged Biden to, to, to cut off the sales of weaponry based upon the OPEC plus decision. I find it very interesting that Kahana would present this as an option to Biden because we know that the weapon sales to Biden is a much bigger issue than just selling weapons. It's a money laundering scheme. There's too much profit for the arms industry 
for Biden to want to take them on in <laughs> response to this oil issue. Oh, well, no doubt. And, you know, it was pathetic if we think about the uh, optic of the fist bump, bump uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, where, he, where you know, he had to go and kiss the ring and, and beg the Saudis to ramp up oil production uh, in order to make up for, uh, you know, lost supply from Russia. And that is, you know, <laughs> the Saudis turned around and did exactly the opposite, right? Uh, which is, you know, by the way, going to have some interesting effects in the midterms, right? I mean, here we are a month before uh, the midterm elections. Uh, you can, you know, gas prices are going to go up because uh, gas prices are, you know, they, they respond immediately to changes like this because they're based on futures. So, uh, you know, gas prices are going to go up. People are going to see these giant signs and they thought things were headed in the right direction in terms of gas prices. And, and you know, suddenly they're not. So uh, that'll be interesting to see, too. Well, and, and on the, that, um, Ted, I have to suspect that the um, two things and get, I'll get your thoughts on it. What's not being discussed about the oil prices is the timing of it. What just happened? The EU just said, we're going to do a price cap. And basically, there is no EU. It's the U.S. using the EU as an umbrella organization to bring together their vassals. So the U.S. is saying, we're going to control oil prices with this price cap. To me, it's the OPEC plus one saying, oh, no, you're not. We'll control the oil prices. We will show you who controls the oil prices. It seems to me, to some extent, that OPEC, I mean, the immediate immediacy of it happens, A happens, then B happens, shows to me they're throwing an elbow. And I have to also imagine, well, if you could comment on both of these things, the U.S. attacking the oil, the energy infrastructure of a country would not be something welcome to countries that provide energy. Those two things. Ted, your thoughts? Well, I'll start with the second one. That That is for sure. I mean, we all know, I mean, the odds that Russia bombed its own pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, is as close to zero as you can possibly get to without exactly touching zero. And, um, you know, the uh, United States, on the other hand, uh, certainly has every opportunity, every ability and all the motivation to do so and kind of implied that it would do so uh, by several statements from the Secretary of State and from the president. So... Um, in terms of the uh, first part, I'm sorry, I, the first part of your question, uh, I need to hear again. Uh, the I'm first making, one I'm, was the uh, the EU price cap, the saying that that the U.S. is going to control oil prices, and then and the and the uh, uh, basically this being an elbow back saying, oh no, you're not. Right. So, yeah, no, I I think um, the <laughs> the price cap idea might be one of the stupidest ideas that any American administration has ever come up with. I don't even know, you know, I, I can't get past the fact that I don't see how this works. I mean, if I call my landlord and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm capping my rent at 50% of what I'm currently paying. And, you know, you're just going to have to take it. My land, you know, I'm going to be evicted. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, no one has to sell anything for less than they want for it. And, uh, you know, and, and Russia and uh, other oil producing states and including OPEC, are not exceptions to the rules of the fact that you get to set your own prices. Um, all that's going to happen is you should, they're just not going to be buying anything. You know, I mean, it's just, it is a ridiculous scheme. Um, and yeah, I agree that that is, that's, this is their, the U.S.'s lame attempt to try to uh, impose some uh, economic hegemony. It's so doomed to failure. It's, it's not even funny. 
Well, one of the things that's also very interesting about that uh, to me is uh, the, I guess, elements of the logic is that Russia doesn't have any options in terms of where it wants to sell its oil, but, you know, provided everybody signs on to the sanctions. But what has been obvious for a very long time is there are a lot of countries that will do business with Russia relative to oil and natural gas and uh, price caps be damned and sanctions be damned. So the, the whole mentality and mindset is, is flawed. Well, it, it is. And, you know, energy prices don't work that way, right? It's a global market. So if well, one that's my country, point. right, so, so it's not like, you know, you can really single out any one country and just say like, well, you know, we're just not buying your oil. I mean, it's all fungible, right? I mean, if uh, China decides to buy more Russian oil, they should just buy, you know, less oil from Indonesia. It's, it's really not that hard. Um, and so it's, it's a completely, again, it, they're trying to control. It's like trying to, to you know, grab mercury with your hands. They're trying to control something that they just can't control. And it also seems to me, Ted, the war, the, the U.S. is now at war with everybody. Uh, they're at war with Russia because they're evil. Of course, China, they're growing a little too fast and they could change the status quo, according to certain people. So they, we're at war with them. Of course, we got to blow up Germany's infrastructure. So I guess we're at war with them. And now those darn OPEC people, why they won't listen either. Is there anybody we're not at war with? Got about a minute and a half, Ted. Well, in terms of uh, you know OPEC, I think OPEC knows exactly who's in charge, and it's them. It's not the U.S. <laughs> um, and uh, you know that's just a simple power dynamic. Um, you know, the U- again, the U.S. foreign U.S. foreign policy is all about if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You think you can bully everyone and everything. In you know, in the real world, that's never been true, and it's certainly not true now. The things there's been so many dramatic realignments, and and really everybody's sick of the U.S. and uh, this kind of behavior. We're not at war with the island of Tonga, just to let you know. <laughs> and uh, with 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 the uh, with the with the uh, hammer and nail uh, metaphor, it's more like the Three Stooges, uh, oh, the old Three Stooges skit, where where Mo says, "When I uh, here's a hammer, when I nod my head, hit it," and he hits him in the head with a hammer. <laughs> Ted Rawl is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Once again, you can go to R-A-L-L. That's Rawl.com for more. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Congress works hard to hide the fascist ideology of Ukrainian Nazis who visited Capitol Hill. Also, arch neocon Michael Rubin candidly admits that Joe Biden attacked the Nord Stream pipelines. Joining us now, we have Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's the co-editor of a great website. It's popularresistance.org. Dr. Flowers, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Oh, thank you, Garland. It's wonderful to be with you and Wilmer, and thank you so much for inviting me. 
Let's start with a great article in Popular Resistance, a website that you are uh, helping to run. Anti-war activists protest Harvard Kennedy School professor with ties to defense contractor. I'll put it like this, Margaret, starting with this. If you know much about Harvard Kennedy School, you're not surprised that one of their professors is tied to a defense contractor. But I think it's a great thing that these anti-war activists are pointing it out and are going in saying, no way, this is unacceptable. Margaret. Oh, I I agree with you. You know, so many of people who get into legislature in the United States, whether it's at the state level or at the federal level, go through these programs at the Harvard Kennedy School. And I've seen literally how it changes people um, to go through these programs and and to kind of uh, funnel them into that kind of mainstream U.S. uh, kind of pathway that we take and and prevent any sort of challenges to it. So I think, yeah, it was fantastic that they went into this professor, Megan O'Sullivan, right into her class uh, and just called her out for her ties to Raytheon. It's what we need to be doing. We need to be going after every aspect of the military industrial complex uh, to stop taking us off of this, you know, to get us off this path that we're on as a nation. Do you see this as being a subtle or not so subtle shift in the domestic landscape because they say, oh, you all right, that the protesters, most of whom were not affiliated with Harvard, burst into the classroom chanting this. And if you take this along with uh, a responsible statecraft piece that polls show that young people want to cut defense budget and you've got the uh, Army and the Navy not meeting their recruitment goals, there really seems to be an anti-war sentiment growing in the country. Well, let's, you know, definitely let's hope so. And I think it's super important that the activists took this step to let the students who may not have been aware of their professor's ties, you never know where that's going to go. And I think of, you know, when David Petraeus uh, was, you know, lecturing at there was a university in New York. I can't remember which one it was. And the students led a whole campaign against him and to expose him as a war criminal. We see, you know, students going after uh, military corporations that come into the schools and try to recruit students to work for them. We see great student activism around that. And these are all really important parts of building uh, that anti-war movement, which I think, you know, think about this current generation. I mean, they have grown up in a re, you know in war ever since you know their whole lives so i hope that that's that's where we're headed well and and the actual the 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 dean of the of the uh of the kennedy school the dean right now who's a guy named John, uh, a, a guy named elmendorf he actually was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy under Larry Summers. So that's like neoliberal ground zero. Moving on, uh, there's an article in Moon of Alabama, Media Hide Fascist Ideology of, of Ukrainian Militia, which visits Congress. And this that's another thing that's terrible. You know, look, if you're going to do something, just do it. The Biden administration is supporting arming people who have a very distinct ideology that was popular during Germany in the 1930s, will shall we say. that It is what it is. If you're going to arm them, just say we're arming the Azov and their Nazis. But to watch the Congress and to watch our government do that and make an effort to hide that these people are knowledge, you know, just shows the, the mens rea, the criminal intent. We know they're wrong, but we got to hide it from our people. Your thoughts, Margaret? 
Right. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, Congress was calling out the Nazi elements within the Ukrainian military and saying, you know, no, we shouldn't be sending weapons to this. But now that it's our war, that it's our proxy war that we're fighting against Russia and we need, you know, those Nazi elements in there. You know, this is so common for the U.S., isn't it? I mean, think about Saddam Hussein was our friend and he wasn't our friend. You know, Al Qaeda was useful to us and then they weren't useful to us. The U.S. uses uh any population that it that it wants to when it needs to to advance its own agenda. So it doesn't surprise me that now that we're in this, uh, they're kind of trying to hide this. And I think what's really dangerous is uh, kind of this um, normalization of it uh, and these groups that are starting to develop in the United States. And I think, you know, I was starting, Gray Zone has a great article on this, um, but starting to look at some of the connections between those organizations that are out there kind of trying to mainstream this conflict and their connections to USAID, to the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, we have to be aware of this. In fact, I'm glad you brought that, you made that point because what a lot of people need to realize when it comes to propaganda, it's not only what you're told, it's what you're not told. For example, uh, yesterday, the United States came out and said, oh, our intelligence services have told us that uh, Ukraine was responsible for the for the death of Ms. Dugina. Or, and, but what they didn't say was it's USAID and American tax dollars that fund the government, that fund the organization that put this hit list out in the first place. So this was done with American tax dollars. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so much of, you know, the misinformation that these these organizations within uh, Ukraine are funded through our U.S. tax dollars, through USAID, through the National Endowment for Democracy. They fund what they call human rights organizations, and then they use those uh, to convince people in the United States that these are, you know, valid organizations that we should be supporting. They, They own the media, like the Kiev Independent, that just pumps out lies, and then those are repeated through our corporate media. It's important for people to understand how this machine works, this whole propaganda machine that builds public consent for what now we're in in a really critical, dangerous phase uh, of this conflict and, you know, a danger to us personally. So I I think it's important for people to, to be aware of these things. Here's an interesting article, and it's, um, you know, saying the quiet part out loud. Arch neocon Michael Rubin writes, Biden should give trans-Turkish energy corridors, listen to this, the same treatment he ultimately gave Nord Stream 2 and for the same reasons. You know, when I was in investigations, one thing I remember is, you know, taking courses on serial killers and things like that. And, you know, they give clues. Ultimately, the serial killer really wants credit for what they're doing. They want people to know I'm the guy who did it or in girl or whoever is the serial killer, right? And so what you see is, even as they're like, oh, no, what, blow up Nord Stream 2? We don't know anything. No, how'd that happen? Must have been the Russians. Michael, The Michael Rubens of the world have to brag to a point where they're now saying to Joe Biden, we attacked our uh, ostensible allies, Germany's infrastructure. Structure. Turkey's an ally, too. Let's blow theirs up. Let's just go around all of our allies and we will now say to them, you will do what we tell you or we'll blow you up the same way we blow everybody up. It's psychotic. Um, your thoughts, Margaret? 
It's so interesting. It's like, you know, when, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, she talked about kind of the private life and the public life and the things that we say in private that we wouldn't say in public. I think sometimes people forget. They're so used to being able to talk about these things within their, their inner circles that, then you know, it comes out publicly. But this is, you know, the, the conflict in Ukraine in part is about the U.S. trying to hang on to its domination of the world and prevent the multipolar world order that's that's developing right now. But another big piece of this, of course, is, as so many of our military conflicts are, it's about oil. It's about the United States wanting to be, you know, as under Obama became one of the top producers of oil and gas, wants to make sure that there isn't any competition for that and that we force the European Union, you know, another huge economy into purchasing our oil and gas. That's that's one of the major cross, you know, roots of this conflict. Well, to this point as well, they publish white papers. They have think tanks. Blinken writes the book Ally versus Ally, uh, America, Europe and the Siberian Pipeline Crisis. He wrote uh, that book was published, uh, I want to say, in the 80s. You've got the uh, project for the new American century asking, sending an open letter to Bill Clinton to get rid of Saddam Hussein. And it took a few years. Clinton didn't do it, but they finally got it done. So, so they're very clear about their agenda. They're very clear about their objectives. They, they've got think tanks. They've got books. They've got white papers. All the information is out there. You just have to read and connect the dots. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, look at the Council on Foreign Relations, if you want to know what the, there you go. the neocons are thinking. You know, look, I think, you know, people talk about 2000 and, you know, Al Gore and, you know, wouldn't things be different if Al Gore had, you know, been president? And in fact, Al Gore at the Council on Foreign Relations was saying, yes, we need to go after Iraq. But he wanted to bomb Iran first. You know, that was his highest priority. So, yeah, it, you know, whatever party is in power, we see the same type of policy uh, in place. Well, and, and and the reality is, and we see Florida torn to bits right now by a hurricane. And what? how do we fix it? By giving $625 mil- more million dollars to Ukraine. And might I add, uh, Margaret, that money ain't going to Ukraine. It's going right over to um, uh, General Dynamics and Raytheon and all their bank accounts. This fraud that the money's going overseas, no, we should be getting health care. We should be getting help for natural disasters. And all this money is just going into the pocket of the military industrial complex, Margaret. Well, that's how it's, you know, that's how it always is, right? You look at the International Monetary Fund and when, you know, we force debt onto countries, they never actually receive that money. That that goes into U.S. contractors, Bechtel and the others. And, you know, a lot of the time they start these huge infrastructure projects, they don't even complete them. It's, it's, it's you know, just another way of funneling money into the corporations. And it's another thing that, you know, people need to be aware of. Uh, you know, what the U.S. does. And I, you know, it's sad. You start to see these memes going around where people in Florida were, were, you know, putting Ukrainian flags up and thinking, well, maybe we'll get some money if we pretend to be Ukraine. It's just an absurd situation that we're in. Going back to this whole point of uh, Biden should should kill Turkstream to promote transatlantic energy security, the fact that they've come out or various uh, individuals are coming out now and unabashedly and just saying, yeah, we did it, but CNN, MSNBC, they're, they're not reporting on this after the whole narrative was Russia blew up its own pipeline. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we know how that works, right? And that, you know, the, these major media outlets uh, are 
given instructions, they change they you know they change their reporting based on what's in the interest of the power structure of the United States. So that's not a surprise. You know, we're not seeing from these you know corporate outlets. We don't see real journalism. We don't see real reporting. That's why programs like yours are you know are so important to try to get these actual the you know narratives out there and 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 counter. Uh, What's being hidden from us? It's why, you know, this weekend we're going to be rallying for Julian Assange. We need, we need a thousand Julian Assange. We need, uh, you know, we need to have access to this information because people are being lied into a very dangerous situation. And, uh, well, we got about a minute and a half left. Uh, we, I do want to, uh, once again, tell people about Popular Resistance, your great website, what kind of things you have in it and where they can find it. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, it's popularresistance.org, and we post uh, about a dozen or so articles every day. You can sign up for the free daily digest, and each morning you'll get an email that has summaries of those articles. And we just try to provide, you know, information on resistance that's happening in the U.S. and around the world, as well as challenging these these false corporate uh, narratives and then providing people with uh, positives, you know, things that people are doing in their communities to build the kind of world we want to live in. What about the uh, Assange uh, rally this Saturday? Right. So this is an international day of action, October 8th, for Julian Assange. And uh, in Washington, D.C., people are going to be gathering at the Department of Justice from noon until 3 p.m. There's a great lineup of speakers, uh, Chris Hedges, Randy Credico, and, and others. So I hope folks will come out for this really important, uh, you know, that we defend Julian Assange because it's already having a chill, uh, chilling effect on folks. And we we can't let that happen. Yes, Margaret. In fact, I've heard that one of the speakers is Garland Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking with Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's a co- she is a co-editor at popularresistance.org. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 